на трибунах холеют знамена, Облака под небесни плывут. На зеленом ковре стадиона разноцветные майки цветут. Hello and welcome back to the Russian Football News Podcast. The international break took over last week with Russia State starting with a 100% record. With me this week is Richard Pike. Good evening, everybody. How are we all? And Andrew Flint. Hello, hello, hello. So, as like I said, international fo- football took over from the RPL as we stepped aside over the weekend. Russia kicked off their Nations League start with well-earned victories over South Serbia and Hungary, respectively. In the first game at the Lev Yashin Stadium, Stani Chachesov selected a front line which total age added up to exactly 100, that of which Artem Zuba, Yuri Zhirkov and Alexei Ianov. However, a brace on Zuba and a wonderful late strike from Vyacheslav Karavayev led to a 3-1 victory. Over in Hungary on Sunday, Spornaya faced, raced off to a 3-0 lead thanks to goals from Anton Moranchuk, Magomed Ozdoyev and Mario Fernandez, before being pegged back twice, but held on to take all three points. Now, first of all, Andrew, what did you think of that initial team selection against Serbia? It was laden with players all on the wrong end of 13, a load of them playing out of position, including Zobnin and Karavayev, and to be honest, I feared the worst, but it all turned out all right in the end. Well, it did. I mean, I shared your fears, I'll be honest, before the game. And, uh, well, I'll, I'll go even further back for squad selection. I think most of us groaned. We looked at the under-21 squad, and you mentioned this in the last pod, or two pods ago at least, and the under-21s are such a strong group of players, and yet very few of them are clearly are trusted by Chichesov. Um And when you see, I mean, Yuri Zhirkov has had for me, a strange last 18 months. He's impressed, given his age, but that's relative to his age. He's had a few standout moments, but he's not exactly a player that a very talented Serbia side are going to be troubled by. Um, but you have to give Chechesov credit where it's due. He specifically played Karavayev out of position. Um, left back, he's a right-footed player. And he said, look, he cuts in. He's good at cutting in. And look what happened. And I did think this was the key game in the Nations League group, Serbia at home. Serbia away, I would take a point. um, But in the interest of finishing top of the group, it had to be three points at home to Serbia. Otherwise, you'd you'd worry about Russia finishing top of the group. And and the selection paid off in the end. So as much as we criticise Chichesov for being conservative, picking the older experienced players, it worked. Yeah, it, it did work. And to be honest, I get a little bit more and more surprised each each time I see it. But maybe it's just that part of me that always wants youngsters to be in the squad. But there's one kind of unmitigated, irrevocable starter, and that's always, of course, Artem Zuba. Now his two goals has taken him to 26 goals in just 44 games for the national team. And he's now just four short of Alexander Kazhukov's record of 30 and 91. On his current form, and still with quite a few layers left in the tank, you think the starting striker and current captain. It's got to be just a matter of time now that he becomes Russia's leading goalscorer of all time, surely, Richard? Yes, indeed. Um, considering, um, too, as well, that Russia have some uh, friendlies lined up alongside the Nations League games in October and November, and I think one of them's um, against Moldova, so you'd have to fancy him maybe even to bag a, a goal or two there, possibly, if he plays well. Um, all the, uh, it's all very feasible, yeah, that he could either draw level with Kurt Sakoff or even surpass him uh, by the end of this year. 
and um, it's amazing turnaround in fortunes for it for him, isn't it? Considering you know that absolutely terrible uh, Euro two thousand and sixteen campaign for Spornaya, where you know the players didn't play well, um, and now four years on, it's just all changed. You know, Russia's in good form, quarterfinals of the World Cup, Zuba is scoring goals. Um, and full credit to Zuba, you have to give him full credit for that. You know, it was that lone spell that he had just before the 2018 World Cup at Arsenal Tula. And it, he found a second um, life to his career, I think, after that. You know, um, we always, we thought before then, you know, he wasn't, you know, he's one of those players who was going to go on and have a decent, steady career, but not quite hit the heights. But it's almost like he's, it's been a strat, he's launched his career into a different stratosphere since then. So um, worked harder, improving his game, and you know he's reaping all the rewards at the moment. Um, and I suspect that you know with Zuba possibly probably playing for Spornaya till about twenty twenty two World Cup in Qatar, I think that might be a decent time to finish. He'd be about thirty four, thirty five then, I think. Um, given that he's probably going to play on that long when he breaks the record, because I think he certainly will break the record. I think it could be a record that could last a while, especially you know if he's going to. You know, play on till that time. Obviously, we can't predict the future, but you know, I, I feel in yeah, he will break the record soon and um, could set a very high um, and difficult um, tally to to break in the future. Yeah, entirely, and it, it, it's that also to a moment where it, it kind of that he seemed to evolve, and it's when his career took a turn. And we've got a very long read on it by Neil Salato, and it's the, the evolution of Art and Zuba. And in that, if you go on, it, it's very interesting. It looks at Zuba's career throughout his like his whole path from starting at Spartak and what he was known as then the, the problem child at Spartak. And he always kept getting into into spats like with with experienced players or getting in getting himself into trouble, doing silly things. And and that obviously the big one is is when he was left out of the Russia squad with Kokorin and the pair of them had the had the uh, the photo together where they were laughing at Russia losing and going out and being terrible and. And and since since Arsenal, it's not, it's not just he's always been Zuba. He's always played the same way. He looked at early on, early on in his career at times, a little bit like a cart horse. But he's always been an absolute brute with better close control than you would give him credit for, especially for a big guy. But it seems to be in the last two years, he's relished being the big man. It's a, it's a big mentality change. And I always remember a quote, and it was Gennady Orlov, who former former um, Russian manager, who who literally said in the press that he's like a child; he requires affection. And since the World Cup, this whole Zuba mania, he, he has the affection. He went into the World Cup with no pressure whatsoever. He was banging goals in, well informed for Arsenal Tula, but all the pressure was on Smolov. He was the guy who was in front of GQ. He was the man everyone thought would lead Russia to to, to a, hopefully yeah. a good tournament. And to be fair. We all did, absolutely. And then Zuba yeah. came on and just won the nation's hearts. And since then, he's not looked back. He was an unlikely hero. And there's a, a really good quote I remember from just after the World Cup. And I just brought it to PM once again. It's in Neil's long read. I recommend to read it. And, and it's from Church Asaf. And he says that a person can have a diff- difficult character or could be idiotic. But these two are difficult, are different things. In the first case, it's possible to work with a footballer. In the second case, it isn't. My job is not to unlock his ability, but it's to unlock how he works for the team. Yes, Zuba used to be a difficult character, but he's now the leader. He's now the man that you looked that the rest of the team looked to. And it's it's, it's the highest of praise, to be quite honest, from Church's stuff. Like Zuba knows this. He knows how he's changed. He knows what he's had to do. And 
26 and 44 is an unbelievable record. Now onto the second one where Zuba didn't actually score. It was Hungary decide kind of it was very much what we were briefed by some of our Hungarian colleagues and that they were laden with some talented youngsters and, and have, have quite a strong attack, but very far from the finished article, very inconsistent and a bit of a bad defence. Now, the defence got off to a horror show early on as Russia strode to a 3-0 lead. So, Andrew, do you think it was was it good to see such a, a younger Russia side take the initiative so early? And is that auspicious for the future, maybe? Well, it was pleasing to see a, a slight change in the lineup, at least, because... You know, if you get too stuck in your ways, it will work for a short while, but you've got to eventually develop and evolve the side because there are so many talented youngsters. Now, seeing Anton Midanchuk given a a leading role was really, really pleasing. That was easily the most satisfying part, I think, of this match because Russia looked confident. They looked really, really good going forward. They were breaking at speed. And Artem Juba, although he didn't score, it was one of the, I think it was one of my favourite performances I've seen him put on for Sport now. He was just the centrepiece of everything. And like he does for Zanit, he worked out wide. He worked down the centre. He did not let the Hungarian defence rest. And it just gave Anton Milanchuk and um, the likes of Dado Kozayev, whose future is a bit uncertain at the moment without a club, it gave them licence to to express themselves more because the Russian side it's taken them a while to evolve like like you boys mentioned after 2016 that was one of the low points in in modern memory I would argue um, and it's taken time to evolve into a side that can express themselves there's still more room to go to bring in the younger players but the fact that there are so many options now in mm-hmm. the well, the squad in the grander sense, if you if you include the under twenty ones, is a really pleasing sign. Yeah, against Hungary, I have to say it was um, it was impressive. I mean, for the first hour at least. Um, and you know, when we sat back and Hungary came back into the game, it was okay. We've got to hold out, but even that was pl- promising because they, they did show enough character to close out the game. So it was a very very successful international break for me um, for a number of different reasons. Yeah, I think promising is probably the best word for it. The the games were boring, to be honest, at best, but all Nations League games were, I think, during the the whole international break. They, they struggled in general with uh, the players of not playing together for nine, ten months at least. Struggled with the the, the Nations League in general. It's, it, it makes games difficult to watch because the clubs, every single team is very well matched. But for the team itself, it's infinitely better than... I don't know, Belgium playing Gibraltar and beating them 13-0. That's, that's not really handy for either side, apart from goal difference. So, it, But because of that, the games are boring. But Russia still managed to get two very strong results, one away from home against a worse side than Russia, I would say, and a very good result at home to Serbia, without two of the most, two, a new, numerous of the best players, including Cheryshev and Alexei Marantxuk. And even before that, with people comparing the two squads and thinking that the under-21s is actually better than the first team. Having said all of this, they still won twice and 100% off, off the way. So I must say, I, I, I do continuously slate Churchesov, but to his credit, he has a system that works and the mentality of the group's the healthiest for a very long time. Now, do you think this could be an auspicious campaign in the Nations League, Richard? Uh, yeah, it's been um, been a perfect start for them. Um, been a very good start for Russia. 
Um, Turkey were presented challenge as well. Um, so, you know, um, we must stay humble, not get too carried away. But it has been a very good start. Um, um, crucially, the next two Nations League games that uh, Russia play to um, are at home, I think, against both Turkey and Hungary. So if they can get two wins there, then that, that puts them in, um, puts Spawn down in a really strong position um, to win the group, win promotion to the uh, the top tier and uh, get a good seeding for the uh, 2022 World Cup draw, which, you know, is always handy. Then that helps them get a better group for qualifying, build on the momentum further of the 2020, 2018 World Cup on home soil. Still work to do, but very promising so far. And what I will say is that another thing that is... Um, Whilst, yes, we do sometimes criticise Chertsov for some of the conservative uh, squad selections and you've got to give him credit for game results. Um, you know, so far he's he's doing everything that um, you want him to do. But one thing I will say is, is that one thing that he did get right um, in the recent international break was benching Guillerme. We've been saying it for a while that we don't think he's good enough for uh, Spornaya. Yeah. And I think actually, to be fair to Chertsov, he has seen that now and It'll be very interesting to see what happens in October with the squad selection there. If Shunin is selected again, which I assume he will be, and if he starts, I think that's a sign then of Churchesoff basically dropping Guillerme and um, Shunin will be his number one goalkeeper. And um, that's another tale of resumption too. You know, you have to look at how five years ago Shunin was part of a Dinamo Moscow side relegated from the RPL for the first time in their history. And now, the, you know, he could be Russia's number one going into both this tournament and possibly even the 2022 World Cup as well. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Guillaume is, in my opinion, the most overrated keeper in Russia. That might be controversial. I know myself in Ilya, our local <laughs> correspondent, argue about this on a weekly basis. But well, any I mean, man who makes that many mistakes, come on. I mean, I, I, I think you've got a point, And that's, it's even more damning when you consider he is probably the most overrated keeper, but he's still not actually rated that highly. He's that bad. I really honestly think he's so, he's so unreliable. I mean... Uh, honestly, the, I like the guy's character. I like his personality. He clearly is committed to Russia, to his career in this country, and and as yeah. a person who who lives here, he, he he's not free. He's not just freeloading. Just oh, I'll see which national team I can get into. He really is yeah, committed to definitely. his life here. Um, but on the pitch, do you honestly, if you're a defender, put it this way: if you're a defender, which goalkeeper do you want behind you to give you a sense of assurance? Shunin is streets ahead in that sense. He's reliable. He's yes. not flashy. Um, and I think it's a really good point you made there, um, uh, Richard, because it's you've got to have an experienced keeper in the squad. You can't just load. You can't just throw Maximienko and Safinov straight into the first. No, the, I don't agree with the, doing that. I agree with that, Andrew. Yeah. You know, one of them or bring them into the squad, but you've got to have that leading role. And Guillermo is not that. So good to see Shunin, and he deserves it. There's actually a case, guys, just quickly come in, guys. There's actually a case that could you pick five keepers who are better than um, Guillerme that Russia have? You know, you've probably got Safonov, you've probably got Maximenko, you've got Jupin, Belanov, and um, and Shunin. Probably all five of them probably are better than him. That's the crazy thing about it. 100%. 100%. And Zhenayev. Possibly Zhenayev too, yeah. yeah. Possibly Lunyov's a similar level too. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's like, it's crazy. Um, yeah. I think just about every single keeper in the Premier League, I mean, oh, there's only two non-Russian goalkeepers in the Premier League. And most of them, actually, no, that's a lie. Half of them are more consistent than Guillermo. The other half are probably just as inconsistent. 
like some of the mistakes you see in the RPL from goalkeepers is just crazy. It's like there's a, a huge, a big like chunk of those at the top who are pretty like elite for the level they're at, and then everyone else seems to be like they either they can't pick the ball about the net quick enough. It's 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 very bizarre. And Guillaume is one of those. But I've got to move back to some domestic affairs next. Finally, there's been some big moves in the transfer window while our attentions have been turned towards Serbia and Hungary. Now, there's only one obvious and glaring place to start. Of course, it has to be Alexei Maranchuk. He finally sealed his long-mooted move abroad, joining Champions League and Serie A side Atalanta for 14.5 million euros, signing a long-term deal. Now, straight up, Richard, what do you think of Serie A and Atalanta in particular? Is this a good move for Maranchuk? I think for the kind of player that he is, um, I felt either when he was going to move abroad that Serie A or La Liga would be the two leagues that would suit him the best. So... In that regard, yes, Atalanta does make sense. It suits him. Um, he's going into a side which is um, which last season was scoring goals galore. And obviously because of this, there's plentiful opportunities to assist as well. So, you know, it's the two features that if you look at Marantuk's performances over the last, especially the last year, but before that, even before that, you know, he excels at. Um, he was doing everything last season, scoring, assisting, being involved in play, taking set pieces, you name it, he did it. Um, and I mean, credit to the man as well, because, you know, we've seen this so many times, young Russian players being linked with moves abroad and they don't end up going. And, you know, because they're financially comfortable staying at home. And I've, I've read that, you know, Atlant- what we did say about Atalanta's wage ceiling on the pod a few weeks ago is true. Apparently he is going to be the highest earner at Atalanta from what I've heard. But apparently that wage ceiling of two million euros after tax supposedly is in place. So, Ferdus to Atlanta hmm. sticking for the guns and Ferdus for Maranchuk as well for taking the pay cut. That's one thing I, I did read online. I mean, you took, take everything you read online with a pinch of salt when it comes to transfer rumours, but I can't believe it. <laughs> Atlanta do seem like a well-run club. So I'm very pleased that he's taken the decision to, you know, drop his wages, choose career progression over just the easy route, if you know what I mean. We, we I mean, we like to see the talent, talented players playing in the Russian Premier League because we obviously follow it. But equally at the same time, we do also want to see Russian players do well outside the league. We want to see foreign players who come to the Russian Premier League do well outside the league. So hats off to um, hats off to Maranchuk for doing that. And um, I'm happy it's also been done nice and early. It's good for Lokomotiv because they get the money. They can now look at targets. They've got some time left in the window. It's good for the player. It's good for Maranchuk because he's time to settle in now. He's not joining in October, four, five, six games into the Serie A where it's a, a struggle then to get in and, you know, all that kind of thing. You... you you, you, could, you could have a bad start to the season, then you're behind the eight ball and then you're having to adapt a new player and an expensive sign and then sometimes that can cause friction. So it's it's been done well for both parties. You can have a, a couple of weeks, a week and a half pre-season traffic. Serie A starts not this weekend, but next weekend. So it's it's good for all parties concerned. Um, obviously, there's no transfer. No transfer is guaranteed success. So he's going to have to work hard. Um, but he strikes me having that mentality. Um, you only have to see it over the last four or five seasons of his progression at Lokomotiv. And, um, and you know, he does have all the necessary tools to succeed. So I think on behalf of everybody at RFN, we wish him all the very best of luck. Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. It's it's delight to see that he finally got his move and it's, it's thoroughly deserved. At times, he's just absolutely lit the league up. And he follows obviously in the footsteps of Alexander Golovan of now being the latest of the that crop of exciting youngsters a few years ago to finally see their potential and, and deservedly get that move abroad. And and I think Serie A in particular is the perfect league for his style and specifically Atalanta. Now a friend of mine lives in Padua, which is gonna take hour, hour and a half away from Bigamo. And he, he goes to Atalanta but 
quite regularly. I used to anyway before the current world affairs. But and he he discussed with I discussed myself in in quite depth with him Gasparini and and how Atalanta play. I just asked him these questions and and he he, he thinks that they 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 like attacking rotations and overloads quite a lot. But they they allow they allow to overload the flanks. In the number ten, because they play, they play a back three with a, a roaming number ten, and the number ten is provided acres of space in the midfield, in the in the middle of the midfield and in, in defence, the oppositions, by this rotation and overload out wide, pulls defenders out and just creates acres of space, and that's one of the reasons why they score so many goals. Now, if they're going to be playing like that, there's not many people you want in in the top leagues in European football you want in that space as much space as that as Alexi Maranchuk on the edge of the opposition box. So it seems like it's a brilliant move for him and equally for Atalanta. And I'm really excited to see how he plays. And once again, Richard, I think we echo from everyone our offenders. Best of luck to him and, and all of us who are fans of the RPL will definitely have an eye on the move. Indeed. Now, Dinamo also announced... Alexi. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, Dinamo also announced a transfer of their own not long after this. And that was the signing of Daniel Lesavoy from Arsenal Tula and also a five-year deal. But for a mere 1.8 million euros, a real steal. Now, aside from the obvious very low fee, this is a cracking piece of business, in my opinion. Les have always been one of the most impressive young Russians in the RPL over the last year or so, competing for that title with the likes of Mostovoy and Zinkovsky. Now, Richard, as a Dinamo man, what's your thoughts on this deal? I concur with you, James. I think it's it could potentially be a very good deal, this, for Dinamo. And um, I was listening to, obviously, the pod last week with what you and David were saying, and you know, Dinamo did definitely need a winger. Um, you know, uh, they've been playing Clinton and G out wide. He has been doing all right out there, but he's not really, you know, that's not really his out-and-out role. Um, and Slava Gurioff and uh, and uh, Vladislav Karaputsov are both young players, but they've also both struggled so far. They're still young. They're probably not ready for regular first-team games yet. So I think Lesavoy was um, was a sign that was definitely needed by Dinamo. Like you mentioned on the the pod last week, he's a winger who um, who contributes goals as well. Um, and there's also a remarkable statistic. Apparently, for um, for dribbling this season, he's ranked number four in terms of attempted dribbles behind just Kovica Kvartshelia, Austin Arunov, and um, and Barisha from um, at Matt Grozny. So I think this is a really good sign for Dinamo. He'll add goals to to the game. Well, potentially anyway, we have to wait and see what happens in the flesh. But I think potentially this is a very good signing for Dinamo. He'll add goals and I think, you know, as a winger that can score goals is great because they obviously the more obviously you, you what you expect of wingers is to get assists and to, you know, skirt the life out of fullbacks. But if they can get goals as well, that's a real boost to to um to have. And, you know, and also what you were saying as well for the price. I mean, one point eight million euros. I mean, I honestly thought that they would be um Charged a similar fee to what Dinamo paid for Daniel Fomin, you know, three point five million euros. I really, honestly, thought Arsenal Tula would charge would charge more. So I'm actually, it's 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 double delight because not only is it a good transfer for Dinamo potentially, it's also you know a really good price. Um, and I mean, you know, cynically speaking, could Dinamo actually go back to Arsenal Tula because they need a right back? Could they try and get Daniel Klusevich? I mean, <laughs> I was expecting you know three four million pound for three four million euro bid. Um, but you know they've got they've got um, Lezovoy for one point eight. So is there room left to go back to them for Daniel Klusevich? Um But no, and also as well with Lezovoy, he's a signing that fits the ethos of this new Dinamo under Ruvach, uh, yeah, the sporting director. And um, yeah, I think this could be a very good move. He could do very well at the club. 
yeah, Buvac is definitely taking a step towards youth and that he wants his players to, to fit this this system of gegen pressing that he helped develop with Klopp. And he, even if, say, they sign Lesavoy and he's not lighting the world up, then he's definitely young enough to be able to sell on for potential profit, especially 1.8 million. Now, Dinamo have been crying out for a, a real dynamic winger. I, I personally prefer NG up top alongside a man running off running off a defender. I don't like him out wide as much. I think he's he's one of those where he's in and out of the game. Mm. And when he's on the wing, he just gets lost far too often. Whereas yeah. Maximilian Philip, for example, is he's out on the wing. He doesn't get lost far too often. He can't find the pitch. He's absolutely <laughs> wasted out there. Yes. He's he's that's just not his game whatsoever. So Dinamo really needed this winger. And of course it's no surprise really looking back at that it's Lesserfoy when he was the man to score against Dinamo first this season. So I think it's a very smart deal. Now, Andrew, are you surprised he's made the move to Moscow in European football or was it inevitable? I think it's a very good move. Uh, I'm not surprised that he's moved because Dinamo represents a genuine opportunity and not just because of the size of the club and the history of the club, but his opportunity of playing time. Had he moved to the only other Moscow club I could have pictured him at possibly at a stretch was Lokomotiv, and that's only loosely because of Midanchuk leaving. But then again, Lokomotiv already have Anton ready to come in. Um, Rifat, um, Gemma Letdinov, of course, out wide. So I, I think Dinamo makes the most sense. Like you say, Clinton and G, his, he drifts in and out of games, he is effective in bursts. But I think it could, it's not just the fact that Dinamo will be getting a really direct, dangerous winger who will take men on and will beat them and will create opportunities, but it's what he will allow the other players around him to do. Um, I mean, I think you boys already know my thoughts on Maximilian Philip and his usefulness on the pitch. And so, <laughs> I, mean, if, I mean, in all seriousness, though, all right, in all seriousness, boys, if you look at the impact and the direct influence on a game that Daniel Lesboy has and compare that over 90 minutes on average against Maximilian Philip, there's no comparison. And that's not me being, that's not me being facetious. That's, that's genuinely serious. And he gives an option. It gives another option for him. Um, so I, th- I think it's a fantastic move for him. The finances of the move do raise eyebrows, but the playing side of it, what he brings to Dinamo and what Dinamo offer him, this is this is potentially very exciting because Lesfoy now has a chance to shine, whereas Arsenal Tuli, he would have drifted on into nothingness had he stayed there. So I think this makes a lot of sense and I can't wait to see what he can achieve there. I'm glad you meant to use the words drifting on into nothingness because, to be honest, I think of that with Maximilian Philip at times. But also, in, in, in drifting on into nothingness is a, a certain midfielder called Gus Till, who finally, the long rumour to move to Freiburg <laughs> on loan from Spartak was confirmed. Now, that's probably one of the best moves for all parties. He just didn't quite fit in under Tedesco. It has undergone some terrible injury luck. He was obviously signed by uh, previous sporting director Thomas Sohn for... Kolinov's team. So it's one of those where it just didn't quite work out and hopefully he can find some form in the Bundesliga and Spartak get a good fee for an eventual move if that does happen. And especially with Ostan Nurinov waiting in the wings as the attacker midfield option anyway. But elsewhere, Sochi have actually put, made a double swoop, first of all, signing Arta Yusupov on a free after his summer release from Dinamo. And then interestingly, also signing fellow central midfielder Daniel Pritsev from Krylia for just over a million euros. 
Now, Pritsev might not be a household name, but as some may recall a few weeks ago, is a young Chitanova Academy product who moved to Karelia. And it was him who was one of the eight players when Chitanova basically decided to move everybody to Karelia for just €800,000 between them. Now, literally less than a month later, he's moving to the RPL for a higher fee than the original eight were sold for combined. This is all a bit weird. It's one of those when Sutorman goes to Zenit for like £50,000 or whatever it was, when when Yerakin suddenly is out of contract despite having a two-year contract and moves on a free. When Daniel Lesavoy, who's a very highly rated, talented youngster, goes to Arsenal for less than other Arsenal players have left in the past who are just as talented as he is. It's all a bit strange, but... Perhaps, Andrew, is this just Chitanova being happy with the smaller fee relative to the size of their club? Whereas Krillia need the money? They, this m- amount of money, 800000 this is a, is a huge amount to Chitanova. Well, they're essentially, essentially a school. Well, absolutely it is. Um, it, I mean, there's, there's actually no question, though, as you've just quite rightly pointed out, the discrepancy between the fees paid over such a short time, it's incredibly suspicious. And but I mean, Chitanova, Chitanova is such a strange case, isn't it? They are an incredibly talented academy, and they will be taking part in the the newly designed revamped youth championship because they are one of the they are one of the most impressive academies that that exists certainly in Russia, um, and I would argue in Eastern Europe. But the problem is, I say a problem. It's not really a problem for player development, but in terms of a club. They're not really going to go much further than where they are now, which is at the very top of the second tier. If they were to get promoted, would it really be for the best? Because yeah. the way that they play, I, be, I, as I understand it is a self-imposed rule that they only play from their academy, or certainly a huge majority. Now, those youngsters are incredibly talented, and I've seen them um, in person at the Geolog Stadium here against Fekachi men who are very, very good lower league side, but they were played off the park by these youngsters. And now they've got to go somewhere. What is the path forward from Chitanova for these players? I actually thought it was really exciting to see them move to Krilia because Krilia, although they're at the same level, they are clearly a much bigger club. They are a professional club. They're a full club with no restrictions and there's more room for these players to develop. Critter will be going up, no question about it. They will get promoted at the end of the season. Um, so to see their players move on to bigger clubs with more opportunity, I think will give them a sense of pride because it's basically a rubber stamp of saying, you've done a really good job here. You've developed a player who's ready for professional adult professional football. Um, so... How much game time he'll get is debatable, but the fact he'll be in a Premier League environment is is um, is a testament to the development work that Chitanova do. Yeah, absolutely. And Prutsev himself is is a very talented player. He's still only twenty, central midfielder, of course, and and he's for sure good enough to move into the RPL. But I do have a few fears over the move itself, and it's nothing player related. He won't be expected to start every week and get straight into the game. You'll be slowly eased in, hopefully, anyway, just like other Chitanova products have, like uh, Nylon Yarov, Maxim Glushenkov, Anton Zinkovsky, all eased in slowly and have, oh, now have done in recent history, made huge strides upon the RPL. 
Now, the problem with Sochi is that they've got seven central midfielders competing for just two positions. And two of those are Christian Naboa and Ivelin Popov, who you presume are, are certain starters right now. The next set of two are Arte Supov and Ibrahim Salagov, who are very effective destroyers in midfield. What the hell is going on there? It's, why do they need so many midfielders? They must be moving some of these on. So hopefully it does not stagnate in their de- in his development. Now on to the other midfielder, the signed Yusupov, I, I mentioned there, he's a bit of a destroyer. How did he do with Dynamo last season, Richard? Is is that a little bit unfair to call him that or not? Well, I mean, he's he's had a reputation in the past. Um, you know, he's played for some decent-sized clubs, Yusupov, like some Zenit, um, Rostov. Um, I think he's still a useful player. I mean, he's obviously not going to be the player he was in the past, but he's still he could still do a job in the RPL. Um, I know Dinamo, they basically, Dinamo decided to move on from experienced players and rebuild with youth. Um, had they not gone down that philosophy this season, some of those players may well still have been at the club. But you have to look at um, some of the players like Joao Zinho, who was released by um, Dinamo. He's gone to Sochi as well. Um, Kirill Panchenko has found a club in Tambov so some of these players are still quite useful players um, but like you said with your Supov yeah I mean they've signed him but Sochi just have so many centre midfielders I mean I think he could do still do a steady job I think he's what 30-31 he could still do a steady job in the RPL but yeah how Sochi are going to fit all these midfielders in and, and like I say which ones are going to go is going to be the interesting thing over the next few weeks it still seems a strange one doesn't it because I mentioned on the pod what was it, um, four or five weeks ago when the season started? Um, will Sochi actually try and diversify a transfer strategy? I mean, are they just going to go now to, rather than getting Zenit Lonies or Zenit Castoffs, are they just going to go and get any of the Castoffs from the famous clubs? You know, I, I'm still I'm still sceptical about why, you know, they don't maybe try and look abroad for players. You know, like, they've, I think they've still got some foreign spots available. And, you know, there's, you know, it's good weather down on by the Black Sea, you know, big stadium, decent project. They're a wealthy club. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think Yusupov could do okay for them. Um, he's still got some years left in the tank yet. Um, but like you said, fitting all these midfielders in is going to be um, a real challenge. Yeah, I think the answer to why don't Sochi have a smarter recruitment strategy is brutally honest. Because Sochi don't have a smarter owner to set that recruitment strategy. <laughs> yeah, you can't argue yeah. that, really. No. It, it, it's Rotenberg. We all know what he's like. It's, let's get the big names, let's pay the big bucks, let's hope for the best and just run with it. It's exactly <laughs> what I've done with Dino Moscow for years, and look what happened to them. The best thing they've ever done was, he, he's not off books there, but he's not on books. It's, it's one of those where it's like, I'm still involved, but I'm not actually running the club anymore. God knows. But, yeah, it, it's just very Rotenberg, all of this. And Yusupov, as a player, he's decent. Don't get me wrong. He's, he's, he's effective at what he does. But he's nothing of the player that he was three years ago before he suffered that awful cruciate ligament rupture for Rostov. I think he was out exactly. for seven months. And it's a nasty injury. Uh, I don't know how that one's going to go for Sochi. But, oh, well, Daniel Prutsev hopefully will have a little bit of an easier job getting into midfield with him there. But anyway, let's stop being nasty and sochi for once. Um, after a week of uncertainty in European globetrotting, we can finally return to our safe place, the RPL. Kicking off the weekend on Saturday lunchtime's a big game in the relegation battle with Tambov host Ufa. Tambov, however, are going through their own serious issues off the pitch now. 
Earlier this week, Sport Express reported that a number of letters from players addressed to the governor of the region, Alexander Nikitin, uh, was alongside a statement, was signed by 13 players addressed to the general director of the club, Olga Konovalova, with a request to pay off salary debts for June, July and August 2020, as well as pay bonuses and outgoing bonuses that are in this, from this season and at the end of last season, which still haven't been paid for. In the letters, it was stated that if the team's requirements were not met by September the 11th, which is as of recording tomorrow morning, the signatories intend to suspend their labour activity in accordance with Article 142 of the Labour Code of the Russian Federation. As an aside, that might be Russian, but that's the most Soviet thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> and not participate in training. As well as in the RPL 7th round match with UFA, scheduled for September 12th, they will also not participate. So Tambov, as we all know, have played their RPL matches since promotion in either Saransk or Nizhny Novgorod because their own ground does not meet the minimum requirements. And clearly they're struggling financially, both in general and as a direct result of the smaller attendances that and match day revenue loss due to this. Now, Andrew, this is unfortunately not new at all to the RPL. Almost every year, team struggles financially. And to be quite honest, last year was the the difference from the norm in that a team didn't seem to struggle too much financially. But it's been particularly exposed now by the COVID-19 pandemic. And yeah. these issues have been really like highlighted because of that. So one has to wonder whether or not this is an empty threat from the players. We'll find out in the morning, unfortunately, the worst timing for recording a podcast. But once again, what it comes down to for me is the regional ownership structure in Russia is again causing issues. Well, absolutely, it, it, it is. I mean, it's it's a very, very odd situation that you have in Russia. It's an overhang from the, the Soviet system when so much was centralised and it works to a degree for a very small number of clubs but it just simply doesn't work now that there are investment opportunities you look at Krasnodar as an example set up by Sergei Galitsky he yes he has an endless pot of money virtually and um, but he's done it the right way he's not just simply splashed a ton of money at big name signings in a Boris Rosenberg scattergun fashion um, so you know the okay in one sense the the concept of public ownership of clubs avoids that. But on the other hand, it also severely, severely limits what clubs are actually capable of doing. Now, I mean, Tambor's stadium situation is a, we're getting, we've been getting mixed messages for months now about this. Their, their sporting director claimed in June that they are aiming to be able to play again in Tambor as early as October. Now, I, strongly, strongly doubt that is likely to happen. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm quite happy to be proven wrong, but we all know the likelihood is that they, they won't, simply because it costs money to redevelop the stadium. Uh, now, it's, it's a sad state of affairs when the very top of the professional game in your country has so many restrictions around it. I, I cannot understand why it is not... I understand there's not a huge amount of money in the Russian game in the sense that in the English Premier League, for example, there are enormous TV broadcasting funds available and the prize money is just eye-watering. Now, I know it's not quite the same, but there's still an opportunity there to promote 
a few very well-run clubs, if they are funded, not they don't need to be funded by the nearly to the extent the English clubs are. Um, private ownership, I think, needs to be encouraged in, in Russian football. Otherwise, Russian clubs are going to keep on going under. Um, so, Tambov's case, like you say, the sad part is it's it's almost just okay. This is the latest case. It's not a new story. And what happens to Tambov? Uh, I dread to think. I hope they survive, just simply because I don't like seeing clubs go under, but I don't really know where they can go from here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a little bit of the worry. And now, obviously, look, in, in Russia, that we are getting better. There is more privatisation. In 2017-18, there was only five fully privatised football clubs. Now there's eight. 50% of the Premier League is, is privatised. But on the other hand, 50% is still either fully or partly local or state government owned. Now, that's just a massive issue. Obviously, privatisation does not necessarily equate to financial success. The biggest example of which have got to be Tosna. Now, they were owned by Ford Group, which is a, uh, without <laughs> getting into trouble, it's a basically a, a, a state agent in St. Petersburg who owned the club. I'm not going to do anything about any more than that. But at one point, they had debts exceeding 400 million euros and they, they would cut funding. And that's example of why, or one example of when a, a private club doesn't run great. Now, Dino Moscow with Rotenberg in the past, hugely uh, controversial and relegated and fails. Privatisation does not necessarily equate to financial success. But... And that's the big thing. But ninety percent of cases, that's exactly where it does. These regional, these regional organisations is is what these smaller teams struggle to compete with week in week out. You got play, like look at um, uh, Arsenal Tula, still partly owned by Rostec and partly owned by uh, the state as a non-profit organisation. How the hell can a football club be run as a non-profit organisation? I mean, none of the, all of them are non-profit organisations, but not in that sense. You need the profit to run. It, it's just absolutely crazy. Yeah. And the longer that we have these local government issues, like what we've just seen with Kimki, who nearly couldn't uh, provide answers to being promoted or not until literally a week before the season started, because of the local government situation, we're only available to in the end by huge negotiations with the Moscow regional governor in what was in a gentleman's agreement to be a feeder club in quotation marks as Spartak. That's the only reason they could actually get the money to be promoted. And as you said, Andrew, that'll be Chitanova's problem. Chitanova are private, but they don't consider themselves a football club. Nikolai Laren, the director, considers themselves a school more first and foremost. Now, if they got promoted, I don't know if they would actually accept it. I think they're happy where they are. It's just... I, to be honest, I get quite sick of reading about this year in, year out, and I'm sure the listeners are listening to it because it, in any other country, in the majority of Europe, it's a foregone conclusion that football clubs are privately run businesses. It's it's just mental. Now, Richard, one has to presume that the signing of Kirill Panchenka and a free involves quite a hefty financial settlement for the attacker. Big, big, big money, probably big signing on fee. Certainly a big reputation, and the other clubs in, who are reportedly interested, who are 
got some pretty financial clout. So do you see them staying in the RPL this year? With or is and is is this signing of Pancheca maybe upsetting the apple cart with the other players who are clearly not getting paid for months yet? You've got the the guy who's coming in on big money. Yeah, I mean it's it, it's a big concern, isn't it? I mean, yeah, Panchenko must be on a decent salary there because if you think about it, I remember when he got released by Dinamo, and there was we were all saying on the chat on Facebook that you know there was clubs from Turkey supposed interested in signing him, clubs from Major League Soccer in the United States supposed interested in signing him, and he rocks up at Tamboff. I mean, it, it really you won't go to Tamboff unless you were getting quite good money. You know, obviously you won't be getting the salary he was getting at Dinamo, but you know he's probably still getting decent money there. And yeah, it's probably like the big signing, but you wonder what impact it's had on the rest of the team, who, as we all know now, as what's come to light in the last few days, now have, have not received wages. Um, and I've just gone back to what you and Andrew have just been saying. I completely concur that the um, we should they should be encouraging more privately run football clubs in Russia. No doubt about that. Um, we keep repeating ourselves year in, year out about this. Um, more has to be done about it to try and encourage it. Uh, so it's definitely 100% an issue. However, one thing I will say is, is that whilst this is partly down to the to lack of privatisation in Tamboff's case, I don't think also you can ignore the two other factors. First and foremost, Tamboff can't play their games at home. And before the pandemic hit last year, that was an issue because, you know, they can't play their games at home, so they have to they have to play in Saransk and they have to play in Nishinovgorod. Some of their games, they've been dividing them up between those two stadiums. Um, so obviously there's a cost involved with that. You have to travel to every game. You know, it might involve train train or rail first. I don't know if Tamboff has an airport, so you have to travel by rail, cart a whole squad of 25, including substitutes plus coaching staff. There and from to and from games, possibly by coach sometimes, maybe the odd time you might fly. Um, so there's that cost involved in it too. You sometimes might even have to stay overnight in a hotel, so there's that cost involved in it too. Um, and the second issue is, and I think this is the real killer for them, is when you're playing in Saransk and when you're playing in Ishinovgorod, it probably might well be the stadium rent. Um, because, and given those are World Cup venues, they probably aren't cheap to rent. I mean, I don't know any kind of financial figures on it, but I can't imagine they're cheap to rent. Um, so that is a big killer. Um, and I, I, yeah, with Tamboff, I've got to admit, I think if Kimki, Himki or Rotor do pick up soon, I think Tamboff are gone as I really do. Because even if they did manage to get into the relegation playoffs ahead of those two clubs and survive again, what state are they going to be in? You know, financially, we all know the issues that have occurred this week. And, you know, if there's still no progress on being able to play at home, then I feel really sad because, in a way, promotion to the top flight of your country's level, it's it's about engaging the community, especially in a small club like Tamboff. It's not a big place. And if you were a local person there who liked football and supported the club in the FNL, to get to the RPL, it should have been celebrations in the streets, you know, we're finally at the top level, you know, the big teams are coming to our place, but nothing's happened. That yeah. you know, the, the people. I feel sorry for the people there because they've not had, to, they've not been able to watch the stars come into town. They've not been able to watch Definitely. the big clubs come into play in their town. The the match day income has also dropped too, and all the businesses around it. You know, the bars full of fans and everything like that before the COVID pandemic hit have not seen it. I feel really sorry for Tamboff in a way. It's such a shame. It really is, and I think, and I've had a look at the images of the stadium online. Could they are 
Russian Football Union not have allowed them to play there? I mean, I've just had a look at images on the line of their ground, and it's is it really that worse than some of the stadiums that we've had in the league? I mean, Orenburg's ground is absolutely tiny. <laughs> I was just going to say Orenburg, Richard, exactly that, <laughs> precisely. <laughs> you know, I, I just I just feel if they've allowed exceptions for like the likes of Skarhabarovs for. For, for Orenburg, then sure, the common sense thing to do is just to let Tamboff play. I mean, I know in the English Championship, what they do is, just just one last thing to end quickly on this, is, it, I remember Burton Albion getting promoted to the Championship in England, and um, there's a terrace section on one, one end of the ground. Now, apparently, you're not supposed to have terracing on tiers one and two of English football. You're not allowed to have terrace on the grounds there. Um, but if you're promoted up and you're a small club, you're given a couple of years to adapt. Why couldn't they have done yeah. exactly the same thing with Tamboff here and said, right, your ground probably isn't great, but we'll give you a few years adaptation to see whether yeah. you stay there or not. And if you can stabilise, then you have to get it sorted. Maybe then you might be able to attract some private investment, attract some funding, sell some players on for fees to rejuvenate your ground and just build your old club up again. I just find it really frustrating that they don't allow them to play there because it's such a shame for the local community there. It really is. Yeah. As a quick aside, on the Burton thing, any football fan who is a football fan of a League One club or League Two or anywhere near Burton, go to Burton when your team plays there because it's the greatest away game in English football. It's It's honestly amazing. It's so good. There's that many pubs between the train station and the ground you can't (laughs) walk back. It's brilliant. (laughs) But (laughs) away from that, I think that's a brilliant point that you brought up, Richard, that is is we need to remember the impact upon the people of Tambov more than anything. It's so easy to forget yeah. about that. It's so easy to forget just how these 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 people as these these fans, as you said, are are, are missing out on their team and the team are likewise missing out on them. We're all realizing just how crap football is without fans during this pandemic. Well, Tambov had had that for eighteen months really, because you uh, you can't tra- you can't afford to travel up. From Tambov to Saransk on Nizhny week in, week out to go to the games. Surely not. So it, it, it's just a huge shame. But unfortunately, if we're going to talk people, it's the people's team next. And I don't know if you can hear that coming. But if you listen carefully in the distance, it's oh, the Spartak no. bandwagon. Oh, no. And it's me. I'm driving it alongside Dominico Tedesco. <laughs> the rails are going. And there's a big game of the weekend. See Siska, host Spartak and the main Moscow derby. Spartak are currently on a fine run of form. Uh, I must be said, it's the greatest in recent memory. <laughs> As myself and David deep dived into the club last week. And I'm sure David was delighted to spend 15 minutes with me discussing Spartak and Spartak alone. Now, <laughs> Andrew, will Siska pull off a derby surprise and halt this fine run? Oh, well, to be fair, she can't. Careful now. The... <laughs> I mean, look, this, this is this is Spartak's moment. I mean, I will underline how much James deserves to have this moment because it's been, I, it's, I, I can't remember the exact number, it's over 1,100 days since Spartak were top of the table. But, and I strongly, strongly want to make this point, they deserve this. And the reason I say this is not just simply because James is the host, but because Dominique <laughs> Tedesco has come in, right? Now, we all said... We and and I, James, I'm sure you've mentioned this on on occasion. There have been times when Spartak fans have already questioned whether Tedesco is the man to come in. He came in on a short term contract, and I was worried from the minute I saw it was only an 18 month contract. But he is unbelievably determined. This man, I was there for the the derby against Dinamo in March when Spartak, I think, was their best performance under Tedesco. 
absolutely perfect tactical setup. Now, not every game has gone that way, but when you consider that the Sochi game earlier this season, the 2-2 was well, virtually, I mean, according to a polygraph test, was robbed of Spartak. It should have been five wins out of six. They're unbeaten this season, and the system they play is is finally clicking. Now, you've got to bear in mind how difficult it is to come in as a manager when you don't speak the language initially, although he does now, of course, at least partly, to implement a philosophy that is very different. To reinvent the position of one of the key senior players in Roman Zobnin um, so effectively, to be ruthless enough to say to a young player like Nikolai Raskazov, who was was first choice for a while, and say, right, okay, you're not the guy. I'm gonna I'm gonna play someone else out of position instead of you. To have all that conviction of character, that deserves credit. Um, yeah. And and I have to say, Spartak, when they are on form. They are the great entertainers this um, of, of this league at the moment. Zanit are the are the best side still, and they do still have the best squad. But my God, Spartak are in form. They are the team to watch, and I have to say, it will be a lot of fun to see them, especially with their current front three, uh, to see them keep going. And, and I think Zanit have got a real challenge on, and this is what neutrals want to see. Yeah. Sorry, I was just sitting thinking about Spartak actually being good for once and if I just had a, a brain seizure, I think. <laughs> but um, uh, the, the stats, uh, I read out some stats uh, last week and I, I will get back to one of them, just one of them today. And that's this is that Spartak are currently fielding the highest percentage of players under the age of 23 in the modern era. The highest percentage of Russian players are currently starting under the entirety of Leonid Fadun's ownership. And since Oleg Romantsev was in charge, I think that's wow. just a, an incredible start, especially considering that it's Tedesco in charge. Wow. And yeah. a large part of the reason of why Carrera was sacked was because of this sort of this collection, this murder of crows, really, this collection of apparatchiks behind the scenes. So it's the, the kind of like the sit around a cauldron and the cauldron is the club. And they're just like old <laughs> hags who are like, you do this, you do that, despite having not had anything to do with football themselves for 30 years at <laughs> least so I'll give them the credit they wanted more Russians playing they've got it and it's actually working out very well it, uh, when you see a club and sometimes that club is it's oh, you, you can see the strategy is laid out in front, like Krasidor Krasidor have a long term strategy this is why they do this this is why they do that this is why they do this to be perfectly honest, it's kind of like Spartak tripped down a hill, fell over, and landed and caught up by a big bag of gold halfway down the hill somewhere. That is about that is about the most Spartak response to a brilliant run of form I've ever heard. We've stumbled and fallen down a hill into this. That's even when you have a great run of form, you know what, James? Look, this is your moment, and you've got to enjoy it. And let's look. Let's be honest, boys. This is why we all watch football. This is why we report on football. Because it gives you Indeed. moments like this. Whether you've had to go through hell to get there or whether you've yeah, built definitely. it up over time. Who cares? This is your moment. Now, I won't understand what that feels like as an Ural follower. Although I will do soon because the mighty Stefan Strandberg has joined, of course. Um, but it won't be anything like Spartak's form. And this is, you've got to enjoy this. It doesn't matter how it's happened. It's happened. It's happening right now. And now you can genuinely enjoy it. 
I'm, I'm going to interject here and give a little peek behind the curtain, if you will, a little fourth wall to the listeners right now, is that in our current recording software, we set up our own names or accounts. Now, mine is Russian <laughs> Football News because it's the RFN account. Richard's is Richard, as you would expect, because it's his name. But Andrew's <laughs> is Stefan Strandberg. <laughs> look, look. You, you, we've got to be honest here. Look, Spartak, James, you obviously have a very clear logical reason to be ecstatic at the moment because your team are top of the league. This is the equivalent of being top of the league for Oral. We've signed a competent <laughs> defender. Do you realise how monumental this is in the modern history of Oral? This is a massive, massive thing. So um, I, I'm not ashamed at all to, to call myself Stefan Strandberg for the Zoom call. <laughs> I will for one second. I will... Uh... We'll come back to Ural, and I, I will wax lyrical about this signing as well. But quickly, Richard, is there any any players? Well, I'll, I'll try and get this train back on track. It's <laughs> just like local last week; it's derailed. Ooh. But anyway, Richard, is there any players in particular you want to point out as maybe having a a, a good impact on the derby from Spartak or Siska? I think it's going to be a really interesting game, isn't it? Because Spartak have been playing well. Um, and Siskado, they've obviously been very busy in the transfer market recently. They must, they've got the most generous sponsor in the world, giving them this, this huge cash injection to go and buy these players. Um, you know, you know, it, it's crazy. I, I really did not expect it. Um, but, you know, some of the new signings I'm looking forward to seeing in, seeing uh, Bruno Fuchs, um, uh, the winger they bought from Heron Vane, is it? He, he, Ijude, is it? I think is his name. Yeah, just yeah. don't ask me to say the first name. I can't even yeah. the best of time. Yeah, Ijude, uh, the young winger that they've signed uh, from Heronvain in the Netherlands. So, yeah, I, I think this is going to be an interesting game because obviously Spartak are a form team, but Siska have got these exciting new signings that they're blooding in. Um, mm-hmm. I think in terms of key players, yeah, I think for Spartak, from a Spartak point of view, you're looking at Jordan Larson. I mean... You really have to say at the minute, Jordan Larson is undroppable. I mean, Kokorin has come in, but where is he going to play? Because Jordan Larson at the minute is in super form. Uh, I'm liking how Sobolev is coming on this season too. I think him and Larson are combining really well up front. Um, Alex Kral, I think, could be key. Alex Kral could be really key. Yeah. I think he's shown, like like what you've said on the last few pods where I've been absent, what you've said is, is absolutely spot on. He's not just a defensive destroyer. He can also you know, mm-hmm. run a midfield transition Absolutely. from defence to attack and I think he's going to be a key player in this game from Siska's point of view Igor Deveev I think has got to um, hold the defensive line for them he's their best defender um, Mario Fernandez is his usual consistent self um, and we'll see how some of these new um, signings adapt and obviously there's Nikola Vlasic you know he's he's Siska's go-to man interesting as well this week I reportedly as well um, Zenit Report they had an off yeah. for um, Vlasic and it was not backed by Siska. And I, I think they kind of had to really. They, if they sell Vlasic, then it means just more upheaval. So I think they kind of had to um, knock mm-hmm. that back. So they're the key men. Um, in terms of prediction, I'm going to go 1-1. I am going to stick my neck. I'm going to be a bit conservative with this because it is at Siska. If it was at Spartak, I'd probably feel a bit more comfortable at tipping a Spartak win. But I think it's... Uh, um, I still 1-1 is not a bad result. This is a key month for Spartak, though, these next four games. I think it's... Three of them are Rubin away, Siska at home. Uh, sorry, Siska away this weekend, and uh, then the big one for the next international break, Zenit at home. If Spartak can get a good haul of points, like eight or ten points in this run, then suddenly you never know. It might just be a title challenge. Whisper it quietly, because we all know that it's Spartak can implode at any minute. But um, this could be quite intriguing. I'm touching wood the whole time, Andrew. Any predictions? 
Well, yeah, it's it's a very very close one to call, and I actually am going to go for a draw as well. And it's not because I'm trying to sit on the fence and I'm too scared to call one or the other, but I genuinely do think they're very well matched sides. There is a momentum is with Spartak, of course, um, but with Tiscard, they have shown that they can pull goals out of absolutely nowhere. I mean, the last game before the international break, when they were down in Grozny, um, it was 3-0 looks like a comprehensive win, but it wasn't really like that because they they got two goals late at the end. Um, But one of them, as we've mentioned, Nikola Vlasic, he is their go-to man, as Richard says. Um, I think both sides will score. I don't think, I think this is going to be a cracking game. I cannot wait, cannot wait to be watching this one. Um, And I think a point is actually very good for both sides. Because for Spartak, it means they've got one of their toughest fixtures out of the way. And it will mm-hmm. keep them very, very, if not top, then at least within touching distance. Um, so I think I think it will be a very good result. And I think that's what it will be, 1-1 as well. Oh, I really want to go Spartak win, but it's I'll say 2-1 Spartak. I'm good, keep man. The faith, good man, good but, but Stick to the principles. I say man. this. Every week I say this. Every week I, I sit down. I'm about to look at my bets for the weekend. Now I'm like, oh, Spartak, will I concede a set piece goal? <laughs> eh, no, no, not this week. Surely we'll sort this out. And then, lo and behold, Spartak concede from a set piece. So this week I will bet money on that Spartak will concede from a set piece. And you just know that they won't because that's how it works. <laughs> it does work like, like that. No, you're right. Absolutely. So I'm not, by the way, I'm not everyone bet responsibly, bet carefully, but God damn it, Spartak, sort your defence out at corners and free kicks. But okay, speaking of sorting your defence out, Andrew, your Ural hosts your nemesis, Kinky, on Saturday. Oh, we're still winners this season. So is this a must win? Bit of revenge, maybe? I, absolutely, it, it definitely is, and that is a really depressing statement to have to make that it's must win. But it is undoubtedly. I mean, if you cannot beat Himke at home, just like we didn't in the Russian Cup semi-final, scandalously, then you've really got to take a long, hard look at yourselves. I mean, look. In all seriousness, I will try to be as objective as possible here. Himke are still aside. I think have a very good chance of staying up this season. Now they haven't won the season. True. But they are a side with some with some talent. They can break counter-attacking football very, very dangerously. Um, now, Ural are very... There's so many sides who have changed character so much. Rubin last season, they were the most conservative side in terms of goals scored. And yet this season, they're joint second top goal scorers. Ural last season were involved in more goals than any other side. They conceded the most. And yet this season... They've only had eight goals in their six games so far. Now they've signed the absolute monster, the legend that is Stefan Strandberg. No side's going to score a goal against them again. The only question <laughs> is, the only question is where the goal's going to come. We've only scored three goals in six games. So maybe yeah. David Karayev, it's time for him to step up and get his first goal for the club. Um, and I, I am confident in this game. Of course I am. Branko Jovicic as well has joined. And I'm not entirely sure we needed him, in all fairness, um, because... When you've got Rafael Augustiniak, he's he's is he he effectively is two defensive midfielders. He's the he's the beast in the middle. Um, so Kimki, I'll be honest, this is going to be embarrassing for them. 
um, they're going to be absolutely destroyed 1-0, in my opinion. <laughs> it's, it's quite funny that um, when you get Ural and Sochi central midfielders, now this is counting <laughs> Yagorachev and Podbroshkin as central midfielders, as they have played majority of their recent careers. Ural and Sochi have got more central defenders between them combined than the entirety of the current top six. <laughs> That's quite I impressive. Mean, <laughs> I mean, it, it's uh, you talk about bizarre transfers. Alexander Yevsev returning to Ural. I just, I, I just, I don't speechless as to why. What on earth was the thinking behind this? It has been clear for about five years that Ural need a striker, and it doesn't even have to be the best in the world. Just somebody who can score eight to ten goals in a season, and that would pretty much balance out the side. No, let's get yet another central midfielder. Um, do we? Do you understand the logic behind Russian football clubs, James? Because I don't. No, no, we'll be here for years to come, still trying to figure that one out. <laughs> Maybe my favourite go with the old. Uh... I mean, I guess it's no different to when you know, wasn't it Arsenal needed a defensive central midfielder and they kept buying attacking central midfielders? <laughs> yeah. No, that that's probably yeah, something exactly. comparable, possibly, but I don't know. <laughs> but the um, I just don't. Maybe Matt Vev wants to play like a, a, a two eight zero, maybe give or take, and just flood <laughs> central midfield and hope for the best. It's one way to go. It's FCA. It's a weird one, but anyway, it's. I, I think it's going to be a good, good victory that we get. Kimki look pretty toothless still, and they've got. The, the worst manager in the league under Dimitri Gunker and the Spartak <laughs> fans know what exactly what he's like. But moving on again, Dino play Rubin on Sunday in another RFN derby. It's a potential full debut for Daniel Lesavoy in the cards. So you think this will be a tight game, Richard? Yeah, it could be quite interesting this one, actually. Because um, Rubin have not been great so far on the Slutsky, but they when he when they played a good game, you can see his influence rubbing off on the team. So I think this has been um it's it's been a mixed bag so far from um Rubin this season. Um but some of the recent results have been quite good. Uh Dinamo have been playing alright. Uh, I say they've been solid rather than spectacular so far. Um but, I mean, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because I remember when they played Rotor and it was nil-nil. Sebastian Szymanski has a free kick from just outside of the box. He takes it. He hits the crossbar. Dinamo draw nil-nil. Similar against Ufa. They're 1-0 up. Sebastian Szymanski has a free kick just outside the box. Hits the sank. I think he was hit the post. And then Ufa equalised. Now, if both of those free kicks had gone in, I reckon Dinamo would have won both those games. And I think they probably actually know they would actually be top of the league. So, it's funny, isn't it, how sometimes, you know, we look at the, it's minor little things that really change the dynamic. Yeah, um, absolutely. They've, they've been solid. And, you know, the law of averages state, if he takes another free kick, eventually it's going to go in soon, you know. So it, um, it's going to be an interesting game. I think um, it's at home. It's at Dynamo. So uh, Dynamo at home. So they will be feeling pretty confident. Um, you can't underestimate Rubin, though. Um, I think how Nicola Moro adapts to Dynamo is going to be key um, because – he made his false first start against Dufa and didn't really play very well. I actually thought Daniel Fomin was a player signed for a more defensive capacity or more ball-winning capacity in midfield, was actually, you know, creating more. Um, but you've got to give more a bit of time to settle in. Lezavoy, I'm hoping he gets a start and I'm hoping he can uh, really get into the groove nice and quickly. Um, 
yeah, I think it's going to be a very even game, I think. Um, I think one goal will decide it. I don't think it'll be particularly high scoring. Um, but I think it will be an intriguing game. You know, I think Rubin are improving on the Slutsky gradually. Um, I don't want to give a prediction, but I think it will be tight. I think there'll be a goal in it. I think it's going to be um, an interesting game. Again, Dinamo's defence is quite solid. They need to get Nikolai Komachenko firing up front, though. He's been, you know, firing blanks recently, and that's a problem for Dinamo. They need to get him firing again. Uh, Lezavoy's goals from the flanks, if he can get them from the flanks, will help, but they need to get Komachenko firing. He was their big striker signing and you know he scored a lot of goals in the Czech Republic mm-hmm. they need to get him firing ASAP he was showing signs of promise at the start but has stagnated a bit yeah definitely and moving across Moscow to local now they start life without Alexei Maranchuk and Ernest this weekend of course Anton his twin brother stepped up to the plate till the last two games as Alexei nursed a hamstring injury but now that Alexei is gone news broke today from our friends at Sport BO that local have had a 15 million euro bid turned down for Kavisha at Rubin. They've also turned down a 10 million euro bid from Krasnodar and according to the same report, are loath to sell to a divisional rival. So Andrew, last word. How will Kobo... Kobo? Kobo look? How will Loco cope without Alexei? And could Anton or Kavisha do the job in replacing him? Well, you know, I think purely from a locomotive perspective, I think the best part of this Alexei Mirantuk transfer to Atlanta is for Anton. Now, we've got to remember, was it two seasons, was it three seasons ago, when Anton actually outshone his, his twin brother? But other than that, throughout their careers, he's been the he's been the, the, the lesser light of the two of them. And I think he, I mean, he clearly has the talent. They are very, very similar styles of players. They have the same sort of technique. So it, it's a very simple transition to move from one twin to the other. Um, and I think that the form of Rifat Jemadetlanov also is a massive factor in this because he offers a direct style of running, whereas Anton Miranchuk offers a bit more guile, a bit more technique to thread some passes through. So I think it's a very good balance. Basically, how they will deal with him uh, losing Alexei is simply make build Anton into the star, and I think he will be that star if they were able to sign creature uh, Kradacelia. Then of course they've got a phenomenal player on their hands, but I wouldn't quite go there just yet because as we've just seen, they've a fifteen million euro bid rejected. They'd have to pay obviously more than that to be accepted. Would it really be worth it? At this point, I just honestly wouldn't say it would be. I, I would say with what they've got um, and and build up Anton Milanchuk. And I think he's got enough talent and mentality to, to be the leading light. Yeah, I can see that as well, Andrew. I'm, I'm a big fan of Anton and he has already proven in the last two games that he can step out of his brother's shadow, just like he did in 2017-18, where he was the better twi- out of the twins. And that's been it for this weekend's episode of the RFN podcast. Check out the website as usual at RussianFootballNews.com. As I've mentioned, the main Moscow derby takes over as league leader Spartak travel to take on Siska at the VEB Arena. I've been James Nichols, that's at James Nichols on Twitter. And Andrew and Richard, you both write for Heart of Football. That's right, isn't it, Andrew? You can tell us more about that, bit about that. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we admittedly we've had a, a relatively low period of activity recently, but we've got some unbelievable content coming out. We've got some retrospective stuff about the 2018 World Cup, which is going to be which is going to be brilliant, and 
Uh, Richard, I believe, will tell us more about what he's got planned. But we've got uh, it's got some social media um, channels on. We're on um, we're on Instagram. We're on Twitter, and at it's heart of dot football is our web address. So take a look there. We've got some really good um, nostalgia. We've got some comments. We've got some debates going, and we will be picking up our activity soon. So definitely keep an eye out there. Yeah, we can. Um, I'll just shed a bit of light because um, it's the Bundesliga starting soon. Um, Twenty years ago, one of the most remarkable seasons in uh, the Bundesliga's history, where well, one of the most remarkable conclusions occurred. And um, twenty years on, I'm going to look at uh, the impact of that remarkable conclusion. I'll say no more, but it's Bundesliga related. So if you like your Bundesliga, you should definitely keep uh, tuned into it. It's been the RFM podcast. Goodbye for now. Идет футбольный матч, летит на поле мяч. Веди его, беги, точнее его ударь. Но мяч берет в ноги решительный вратарь. Не напрасно футбольное поле самых ловких и смелых плечок. Здесь нужны тренировка и воля, быстрота, увлечение, расчет.